feminism is a dirty word these days and i think that might be have something to do with you know us us not banding together you know we need to come together again it drives wives wicked it makes such a golden brown pot it must be lots of fun to be a mother i've got something to apologize for i wore my good suit because it was plain and neat afraid of not knowing what is proper this yellow fluffo is such a short shortening Hi, I'm Susan Osman, and this is Being There, Done That, a show about women who are shaping our world. They're not just striving, but thriving. Experienced, smart women who are redefining what it means to be a woman in the workplace. You know I can't work without a good breakfast. All right, Claire, stop typing, please. All right, Claire, stop typing. This week, I talked to one of these women, Jeanette Mason. She's a jazz pianist, arranger, composer, and record producer. She's played at the Carnegie Hall in New York, the Albert Hall in London, and both the Rochester and Atlanta Jazz Festivals. She's been the mainstay of the British jazz scene for over a decade and has toured in Europe, Israel, Japan, Thailand, and the United States. And she joins me now. Hi, Jeanette. Hi. Very nice to have you on the show. Um, Let me ask you about life growing up. Um, I know you're from Wembley. What was life like uh, being a gay teenager in suburbia? I think because it was it was um, the seventies, and you know we really weren't um, okay with gay people then. It was kind of isolating. I think I felt like I was having to hide a lot of the time. I mean, I would literally hide magazines away in my room and you know, try and watch programs on my own that I knew would perhaps show that I was gay. So I think I felt quite isolated. Having said all that, my parents were musicians, so they were very liberal. So I wasn't afraid of telling them. In fact, uh, by by then, my father wasn't around. But um, I told my mother very early on, I think I would have been 15 or 16, because I just, I didn't like having to hide, you know, it felt felt wrong. And um, you know, she was always very supportive. So, um, you know, in terms of my family, it's always been great. There's never been an issue. I I get the impression, and obviously you're going to put me right on this, that men and women, regardless of their sexuality, it's one of the one areas that men and women are on on an equal footing. You know, you can be a star of either gender, depending on how much glare you would attract to your audience. Yet at the same time, there's very much the sexualization of the the male and the female. Mm. Yes, I I agree with you. And I think unless you fit into that category, which I never did, of, you know, the pretty young thing who stands up in front of a, a microphone, I think most people expect women musicians to be singers. And that's been kind of my experience throughout. Given that you're, you said that both your parents were musicians, did you have a lot of music in the, the, the family home when you were growing up? Was, and if so, what music did you listen to? Well, more than having a lot of music, we had a lot of musical instruments. We had a drum kit and a piano and a set of uh, vibes. And um, me and my siblings, we would just play all the time. I mean, it was just what we did. Instead of running, going out to um, run around, we'd just get on the instruments and play together so my brother my brother's a drummer my sister didn't go down that route but you know it was just it just seemed like the normal thing to do <laughs> well when we, we when did you become aware that you had talent and that you actually could make a living out of being a musician I guess because as a child I did display some ability I mean I, I could always make things up and um 
I was always doing concerts at school and um, I remember they were really forcing me down the classical route and I really didn't want to play classical music. I very remember really clearly the, uh, what, one school assembly, I just slammed the piano lid down and went, that's it, I'm not doing that any anymore and just decided I would really focus on, um, you know, being um, much more of a pop or jazz musician. I've, I've kind of treaded, tread, lived in both camps for a long time as a jazz musician, which doesn't earn you any money. And then working in the sort of commercial media end of music, which you, where you can make a living. So, um, yeah, it was never really a choice I had. I was kind of just, it was who I was. It strikes me that jazz is very much a male-orientated world. How did you fit in as a, a young woman, as a, a jazz pianist, and you arrange and you compose? I want to talk about your producing as well a little later on. But how did you, how did you fit in, in into the jazz world? Uh, by taking control. That's the only way I could. I had to be the band leader. I had to be the person taking control. Then I could choose what I was going to do and choose the projects and choose who I wanted to work with rather than waiting to be asked or not, more often than not, asked to do stuff. So I've just always taken that role. You know, I, I, I put things together. I make things happen. It means that I get the work then. Do you think people um, understand jazz? Because I, I know as a child in my household, I had an uncle who loved jazz. And so I, I listened to a lot of jazz when I was, I mean, I don't play a musical instrument. My, my grandfather was a composer, but I myself don't play a musical instrument at all. But I grew up listening to a lot of jazz and I always felt there was a bit of snobbery around jazz. You know, it's the jazz, the jazz musicians who have the, you know, the, as you say, the, you know, the spectrum of creativity and they can really intellectually express themselves with pop music per se was kind of just disregarded as a, that's just pop music. Do you think that's still, do you think that's true? Was that just my impression as a child growing up? I, I think there used to be a lot of snobbery around jazz. I think also the problem is the media do, don't play jazz. I mean, if you go to America, you can go into any bar, any cafe, any shop, you will hear jazz being played. So people are exposed to it in a way that they're not here. You ask any, you know, 11, 12-year-old if they've listened to any jazz, they won't have done because they don't get a choice. And they don't even know whether they like it or not. I mean, my experience of working with, because I do workshops and, with, uh, you know, young teenagers, you, you, you expose them to that music and they like it. I think what's been interesting in the last few years because of the rise of um, streaming and independent record labels and vinyl, that, that jazz is getting a lot more exposure than it used to. Um, and that can only be a positive thing for the music. I was interested to hear you say that the one way you overcame prejudice was to take control. Was that why you decided to actually become a record producer? So you had some autonomy? Um, I Well, I think it's also, from that point of view, yes, you're calling all the shots when you're a producer. But also, it, it absolutely covers all my skills. I love to arrange music. I love to be in the studio recording Um and I also like to play. So all of the things that I enjoy come together in the, in the recording studio. On your, from your produ having your producer's hat on, what do you actually do? So, for example, do you, do you produce yourself? Do you produce other people? How, how, how does that work? I always think of it a bit like sculpting. So I'm, I'm already sculpting the tunes, trying stuff out. We have a bit of kind of going back and forth. Um, 
and then we'll get together and do a kind of final chipping away of how we want them to do. And that's that's where the um, the next stage begins, where you kind of get the musicians together, the studio together, and then you start to hear, uh, you know, the, the exciting bit is when you actually get the musicians together and hear how it's how it's going to sound. And then you might do some further sort of sculpting away at what what, what you've done. So um, for me, um, the producing side, although I do produce myself, um, I also do a lot of work with other singers. I've always wished I was a singer, so I tend to align myself very closely with the best singers I can find to work with. And um, that kind of then fulfills a, a gap that's missing. One of your projects that I thought was very interesting was the EP that you did um, with some of Bowie's songs, Jean Genie, Suffragette City and Starman. And of course, you know, iconic, iconic pieces. And yet you managed to make them sound so fresh and and Bowie-like. I know that sounds a bit weird because, again, growing up as a child, I listened to a lot of Bowie. Um, I probably like you know a lot of people are listening to this, but what what made you choose Bowie to sort of play around with his stuff? It's kind of like taking a Michelangelo and make it you know how do you make it even more perfect than it already is? I know. Now I think back on that, some people ask me, well, how could you take those tunes and do that? Weren't you scared to to do that? And I I didn't really think about it to be honest. I mean, I think you know, music is out there and it's in the ether and people write it because they want other people to hear it. And I I think it's good to kind of rethink and look at music in a different way, you know, and use, use those influences. I used to have a regular um, gig at the Pizza Express in London where it was, this week we're doing Bowie, write 10 arrangements in a week. Next week we're going to do the music of uh, George Michael or whatever. So I got very used to quickly taking a song and just allowing whatever my first idea was with it to roll you know just being confident in in my reaction to the music that that was what was right I want to talk to you now about sexuality and music. Do you think musicians have done enough to make being gay acceptable? Do you think they could do more? I, and I just think across the board, people could do more. I don't think you can necessarily lay that in the, the place of musicians. It still surprises me that, you know, when you hear young, uh, I was watching something yesterday on gay farmers and, you know, still at the age of 15, 16, uh, um, young people are afraid. They're afraid to say they're gay. And that shouldn't be the case, you know. Um, and I think certain environments, obviously, the, the farming environment must be a very difficult environment to be gay in. Um, and I think there are certain fields where it's okay now, but there's still, you know, there's still a, still a lot to do. And I've tried to be out as much as I could. But there have been situations where, you know, I don't want to have to walk in a room and say, hello, I'm gay, you know, I, yeah, I don't do that, you know, but I don't hide my sexuality either. You know, so I don't have to walk in and throw a throw a card down to say this is who I am. So as a woman, where where do you get the confidence to carry through a musical decision? And how, how do you know that? I mean, you talked about you like collaborating and you like working in groups. but how do you know a collaboration is going to work and, and 
And where do you get the confidence to know that this is a this is a good musical decision? That's a really hard one. You don't always know. I mean, it's a lot of trial and error with music. I think, like in in other in other art forms, there's an awful lot. You know, you might end up with a twenty five minute EP, but the amount of um, preparation and thought that's gone into getting that twenty five minutes right um, is huge. You know, so it is a lot of trial and error. And often, um, you know, I might get to the mixing stage with um, something that we recorded. And you just realise something really wasn't working. Um, so it's it's it's. I think that's what I really like about it. It is always an ongoing process. You're never finished, really, until you kind of stamp the seal on that thing and you send it off to be pressed. I mean, there's still room for uh, improvement. I just have. I think uh, you know, going back to what I said before, I have to trust myself because there's no one else to 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 bounce off. I'm sitting here on my own coming up with stuff and then you know you take it in and it can be quite scary the first time you play something for someone you know they've got a chance to either hate it or like it you know and then you learn from the things that don't come out as well so you know I've got one album I did I won't mention what it is but you know I kind of tried to go in a different direction it didn't work it's gone you know it's it's gone it's momentary isn't it all these things and then they're gone so I don't I don't worry too much about what other people think really what I think is interesting is that music does last. So, yes, in your mind, you know, you do an album and you might dismiss it, but there might be someone who, who likes a particular track and they like that music and for some reason it has like a, a soul resonance for them. Which of your pieces of music that you've either composed or been involved with do you feel has the most spiritual resonance for you? Oh, that's really interesting. Um, uh, Prior to this, I did an album called Derange, and there was a song I didn't really know very well. It was a Alison Moyer song called um, This House. And there's something, even when I talk about it, I get this strange, strange feeling. You know how you get that sometimes with music? It's just the lyrics of it are incredible. And I was working with a singer called Gwyneth Herbert, who just is one of those singers that really connects. You know, there's some singers that sing really well, but there's some singers that have an emotional power and she's one of those. And she just sang that song beautifully. So in terms of, you know, one of the pieces of music I'm really proud of, that is that is one of them, This House. Yeah, it's an amazing song, actually. Yeah. And I think that's what's so exciting about music. It stays in the ether, doesn't it? You know, mm. you, you're in your studio posing and arranging and then, years later decades later someone be, might be playing your music i mean it's it's a form of immortality isn't it music yeah it is it is and i think you know i think when we are connected to the past i often think i kind of sit in a in a strange place because my mother was a, a jazz musician in the 50s so i have that background of all that music and all that music that she knew then I grew up, you know, listening to music, uh, punk and David Bowie. And and then now I'm still listening to whatever is out there. And it's incredible music being made now. So I kind of sit in this odd world, I feel, that sometimes. But it being the, the, when I was the year that I was born, you know, I'm balancing all this different music. Um, and it's nice to sometimes be able to just bring all those different influences together. Talking of influence, do you think the hashtag me too movement is influencing the way people view women i read somewhere the other day that someone said that this is probably the most misogynistic period 
we as women have ever had to live through because of online pornography, the sexualization, mass media, social media. Do you think the hashtag MeToo movement is making any inroads into how women are, are perceived? Well, I was really, when that first blew, blew up, I just thought, great, we need to actually talk about this. How many of us have had those experiences throughout our life? You can write them down, you know, jot them that happened there. We all have had those experiences, um, nasty experiences with men that, uh, you know, haven't that. And I'm not discounting that things happen to, to men as well. Of course they do. So that for me, that, that we suddenly just went, yes, we're not going to be silenced about this anymore. So I think that's has been uh, an incredible um, thing to have happened. And we are still talking and we are still um, getting out there. And, you know, the whole thing around the Sarah Everard um, visual last year was yeah. appalling the way that, that that went. You know, that should not have gone in that direction. We just need um, to get out there and start talking about this and find a way to make the environment safer for us because I don't want to be scared walking down the street. But we all do. We all do do that thing of having your keys in your hand or looking behind you or making decisions to not do something. You know, we shouldn't have to not do just because we're women. Ever since um, the, the situation in Afghanistan changed, I, I find it extraordinary that women around the world haven't taken to the streets. And it's like, you know, we're 2021. And men are still giving us permission to work and be educated. And I could weep for those women. You know, I mean, I, I read something the other day. A, an Afghan woman wrote, she said, you know, I was training to be a doctor before the Taliban took over. And now I can't see the point of my life. And you just think, oh, my goodness, this is yeah. absolutely shocking. And, you know, and is there something that the music industry could be doing? You know, I was thinking about live age, you know, when, you know, with Bob Geldof, when he, you know, when he kind of rallied everyone to to help the hungry, you know, isn't there anybody in the music industry that can get behind this? That You know, there are women, as we speak, who are basically being locked up and are prisoners now. Yeah. You know, they can't wear what they like. They can't do what they like. They can't read what they like. And they certainly have no prospects of a, of a professional future. And, and, you know, women like you and I, we are hugely privileged to be free. Yeah. And I, I just somehow feel we, we need to be doing something, but I, I don't know what. And I just wondered as a musician, if you, if you had any ideas. No, I agree with you. I mean, we, it, something on, on that scale, you know, they've just done this um, European music thing, haven't they? That was just all over the BBC. Um, but, you know, I have to come back. Feminism is a dirty word these days, you know, <laughs> and I think that might be, have something to do with you you know, us us not banding together. There's been so so much division, I think, within within uh, within feminism over the last uh, few years, just around the whole trans rights and all of that stuff. It's been quite divisive. So I I think you know we need to come together again. I, and maybe this is one of the issues that is really well. This is the issue that is really important for us to find a way to come together over. And, we, and as you say, we are very privileged. Um, so you've put a bee in my bonnet to maybe start thinking about what we can do and get some women musicians together.
do you think there'll come a time when you'll stop creating or do you think that, you know, does the word retirement ever come into your into your psyche? Oh, yes, I'd love to retire, but I'll still be playing the piano and I'll still be writing books. It would just be, I think retirement for me is just um, coming away from being on stage. That would be the first sort of step, you know, because you can be, you can be, um, you know, Mick Jagger and get up on stage, but how many women uh, do you see yeah. that are still allowed to do that? There's a few. I mean, in the, in the folk industry, you've got people like Peggy Seeger and, women like that but we're not a, we're, we don't have great exposure as older female musicians I mean I, I felt it in my 30s I could no longer be on in pop bands you know 30 is old to be uh on a, on a rock and roll stage with people um you know so then I had to find a, another way of of using my music and you know and it continues you know people don't want to look they don't mind it is a very exposing thing being on a stage as a, as a woman. You are being looked at not just for what you do musically, but for how you look. And you know, there'll be a time when I don't feel comfortable doing that. This is a, this is a conversation we could have, you know, which would go on for hours. Sadly, we're running out of time. Um, I, I want I want to ask you about jazz generally, and you know, we talked earlier about it being the kind of like the the hierarchy within the musical world and people are perhaps a little bit intimidated by jazz. How would you recommend people get into jazz or or find their passion regarding that particular genre? I'd say um, have a listen. There are some really good jazz programmes on the radio. There's um, a couple on Saturday afternoon on the BBC. Um, but also there's, there's an incredible crop of young, um, British jazz musicians. There's a few, you know, when things, things are fully opened up, there was a great sort of scene going on. If you're in London, there's a great scene going on around, um, Hoxton, all that area. Get out and, and see the music because it is, it's on record. It, it sounds great, but, but seeing how, that works live and how the musicians interact with each other. That's the incredible thing about um, yeah, jazz yeah. and improvisation. It is alive. It's a living art form. It becomes something else when you have different people working together. So I'd say go, go, go and see something. Even if you think you don't like jazz, pick a couple of different things to go and, and support. You know, you might come away thinking, wow, I never knew that that was jazz. Um, you know, it has all kinds of influences in it now from, from hip hop to reggae to, you know, it's not, it's not the, the Glenn Miller music of the fifties that some people think it is. It is electrifying when you see musicians actually improvising off one another. And I find it very exciting and I know something special is going on. I don't know what it is, but I know there's something very special when you watch live jazz. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It's that in the moment thing. When looking back on your on your life generally or your musical life, what would you say to your younger self that you know now that you wish you knew then? I think, you know, probably, I mean, it's very personal, is it? That just to have more confidence, you know, there's probably situations I shied away from or didn't go for, or thought I shouldn't speak to that person, you know. Whereas I think... Well, I, you know, perhaps if I was male, I would have had more um, confidence to do that. So although I've displayed a certain amount of confidence throughout my life, I think some of that I've, I, I have held back, you know. So I think I would just just be more confident and just stick to stick to your path, you know. 
stick to stick to what you believe in and um, just carry on making music in whatever way you can if you make 5p from it or 5 million it doesn't matter just being creative and putting music out there is really important Jeanette Mason, thank you very much indeed. I can definitely say you have been there, done that. Thank you so much for talking with me. And thank you for listening to Been There, Done That with me, Susan Osman. Thank you for listening to Been There, Done That with me, Susan Osman. Visit us on btdtshow.com for more interviews with dynamic women. And I'd love to hear from you as well. So please leave us a review and subscribe to us wherever you listen to podcasts. These are words of respect. How can you tell when you're really in love? And look how flaky it is. The girls weigh each portion of food they select. The Been There, Done That show is brought to you by Dan Hall at Pup Media Consultancy. We can still have a lot of fun, can't we? Your manners are showing. I'm a princess. Mabel loves cooking and does it well. Overweight makes an individual undesirable. Lovely stockings. And you think that's all that matters?